So usually a failure is down to one of four things. Mismatch of market timing. You're either too early or too late to market. And, and yeah. it's often very, very difficult to pick exactly the wave, the, the, the optimal type to ride it all the way to the beach. There's, he didn't make any presumptions about how we're gonna gonna price it or cost it. He asked for opinion. He's and, and it's very important how you phrase this question. Oh, I imagine. And, and, and uh, the way he phrased it was uh, how. What I look for, Paul, is I look for five things. First of all, there's got to be a um, great team, and I'm actually very optimistic for the decade ahead. I think we're going to see a age of innovation and discovery unlike anything that we've seen before. Welcome to the Startup Journeys Founders Unplugged podcast. Today we're honored to have Nick McNaughton, a seasoned CEO, entrepreneur, mentor, investor and fund manager. With a remarkable career spanning multiple industries, Nick brings a wealth of experience to our conversation. Nick's extensive background includes successful ventures in the software industry, angel investing, and creating territory-wide early-stage innovation ecosystems. He's played a pivotal role in the success of various startups, including Focus, WinLab, Lithicon, and more. Join me as I delve into Nick's journey from his beginnings in the software industry to becoming a highly successful venture capitalist. We'll explore his insights into creating innovation ecosystems, his experiences as a CEO and board member, and the lessons he's learned along the way. Nick's journey is a wealth of knowledge for aspiring entrepreneurs, providing practical insights and lessons that can guide new founders on their startup paths. Stay tuned for an inspiring conversation with Nick McNaughton, where we unravel the layers of his entrepreneurial journey and extract valuable lessons for startup founders. Welcome, Nick. It's great to have you on my podcast. Welcome to the Startup Journeys podcast. Thanks, Paul. So, Nick, we have a bit of history going back. Uh, you used to be a mentor and also do workshops at the Macquarie University Incubator, which I was situated in for quite a number of years, uh, even pre-COVID. And uh, I always remember your workshops. And whenever I heard your workshops run, I'd, I'd be the first one to put up my hand because they were absolutely brilliant. They're very practical you know, nuts and bolts type workshop where, for example, if we did term sheet negotiation, it felt real, you know, we'd have the investor and we'd have the founders and it was like going through the real process or on your um, your courses on uh, sales, you'd actually get us to make calls. And I remember actually making appointments within the workshop. So they're pretty amazing, and uh, you've been a fantastic mentor over these years. I really appreciate you being on today. So, Nick, just so people get to know you a bit better, can you take us back to the beginning of your very long entrepreneurial journey and talk about what initially inspired you and, and how can your story help new entrepreneurs find a starting point as well? Thanks, Paul. 
Yeah, I've had three careers. So my first career was working for American technology companies, and I spent 16 years working for three tech companies from North America. And uh, my specialty was setting up the Asia-Pacific region for them, from Japan all the way down to New Zealand. And what you learn from American companies is that, uh, yes, they're at the forefront of technology, but they're the best marketers of technology on earth. And so the reason North America is the, the hub, if you like, of technology innovation is not just because of the technology itself, but also because of the way they market it around the world. Yeah, and I think that applies in, in a lot of areas. The US are known for that, aren't they, for their marketing? Yeah, they are. Uh, what they do when you start with them, they kind of brainwash you. They indoctrinate you for, through new hire training. Uh, they bring you in for two weeks. Uh, you're part of a cohort of uh, new newbies, if you like, who are joining the company. And you come out after two weeks of that uh, high intensive process, absolutely a believer in the technology that you're going out to sell and highly motivated. So they have very, very good messaging. They have very good reward systems and they produce highly motivated business leaders. And you, you just want to spend seven days a week working for them. And uh, that, that's why they're successful. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a bit like a startup, really. <laughs> um, it, it is, and in many respects, uh, the startups that I joined, you know, they had, uh, in most cases, no more than 100 uh, staff, so, so relatively small, growing very, very quickly. And I really enjoyed being responsible for new market development in a greenfield territory like Asia Pacific. And uh, mm -hmm. I loved every minute of those 16 years, but I was traveling all the time. And when my wife and I started to have kids, it just became problematic that I was away from home so much. So then I moved on to my second career, which was as an angel investor. And uh, I've been an angel investor now for 25 years. I've invested in, in lots of uh, software and tech companies here in Australia. Yeah. And so, some of them have gone on to be very big successes. That's fantastic. And, and um, obviously, we're interested in those successes. But on this show, we also talk about failures and what we can learn from them as well. So a bit later, I'll ask you about maybe some of the, the, the bigger failures that happened and, and what were the reasons or what we can learn from that as well. So then I'm, ha I'm happy to talk about the failures now, Paula, because I think it's really important for your okay. listeners. And uh, so usually a failure is down to one of four things. Mismatch of market timing. You're either too early or too late to market. And, and yeah. it's often very, very difficult to pick exactly the wave, the, the, the optimal type to ride it all the way to the beach. There's a uh, technical failure. So it's a visionary uh, capability. But uh, in fact, the technology um, sophistication is too much and you can't actually get a product to market. Mm -hmm. The third is a team failure where the two founders usually fall apart and mm. get, decide to go in different ways. And the third, the fourth reason is that you just can't execute fast enough and someone comes over the top and mm -hmm. beats you to the mm -hmm. finish line. So those are the, usually the four reasons of uh, startup failure. That's interesting. <laughs> I feel like my startup had all, all four of those. <laughs> The VR technology was was way too early for a start, you know, and, you know, there, there was yeah, a lot of other issues as well. But, yeah, no, that's really good um, reasoning behind that. So can you give a, an example of maybe some of the, the bigger failures um, that you've been involved with as, a, as an investor 
uh, and, and relating back to those four reasons that, that you said, and, and you know, maybe a couple and, and with different uh, failing for different reasons out of those four. Yeah, so there was a company in Canberra called Simmersion, Simmersion Technology. Mm -hmm. They had a, a, a geospatially accurate platform, which allowed them to do um, 3D visualizations. And they made their money from doing, you know, um, diagrams, for example, the National Arboretum here in Canberra, after the fire of 2003, the uh, Territory and Federal Governments wanted to replace that with something um, a national icon, and uh, obviously the National Arboretum was the project that uh, they they settled on to put there. And uh, Submersion was contracted to do the 3D visualization of it. And I remember, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, seeing this 3D model, which you could fly through and uh, look at it from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. It just looked magnificent. And yeah. today, if you go to the National Arboretum, it looks exactly like the, the model did 10 to 15 years ago. But the, the company decided to create a product uh, that allowed other people to create um, spatially accurate 3D worlds. And it, that product was called Mycosm. And the reality was the vision was right. The uh, capability was correct. But the technology leap was just too far. We could not uh, manage to get a downloadable piece of software that uh, worked on any any computer it had to have an extraordinarily high-end computer mm -hmm. with high-end graphic cards and uh, ultimately we you know we just ran out of money and had to close up the company yeah it's interesting because uh, i was talking with um bernie orenstein uh you'd, you'd know him from the incubator as well and um we're talking about ai and ai is been around for 50 years. He was involved even in the 90s with that. And it's just now that it's really taking off because we have the technology or capability for that. Um, even going back to, you know, the VR space, when we, in 2017, we were creating 360 video VRs and we wanted to put it together a certain way, um, there wasn't a technology for that and we started to develop it ourselves. But then... Um, we were self-funded and we took a long time to do that. It really blew out. So that's, and then others were sort of leaped over us as well. So, you know, all these different things that happened. So that was a good example anyway, Nick. Um, thanks for that. And um, so as someone who has a, a vast experience as a CEO, investor and fund manager, what advice do you have for new founders who are just starting the entrep entrepreneurial journey, say, in the software industry? Thanks. Uh, I believe that the first thing a founder needs to do is really make sure that they do market validation. So there's a temptation for a software developer to start writing code straight away and, and getting stuck into application development. I counsel against that. I think what needs to be done is this market validation. And uh, one of one of my workshops, which you talked about in the preamble for, for this uh, podcast, was my selling to grow uh, capability. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the one of the case studies that uh, that I talk about in that is the um, um, is about a entrepreneur in the 90s who decided that he wanted to create a trouble ticket management system. This was at the dawn of the Internet. Mm. And before he wrote any code, he 
decided to make 400 calls to prospective customers. And it was really market research, Paul, but what he did on each call, he would reach into an organization, he would find out who was responsible for customer service, he would call them, he would ask them, firstly, what system are they using at the moment to see whether there was competition, Secondly, uh, could could they improve the way they did their trouble ticket management? And if it could be improved, what would be the top five features that mm-hmm. uh, they would like to see in a, in a platform? Mm-hmm. And through those 400 calls, uh, Greg got better at uh, obviously making the calls and listening yeah. and doing the discovery. But he got four things out of doing those 400 calls. The first thing was he confirmed that there was a need for a online trouble ticket management system. So he got proper market validation. The second thing he got out of it was that he got the minimum viable product feature list. So the top five feature requests, which he heard consistently across call after call after call. Mm -hmm. But not only did he get the MVP uh, um, scope, he also got version two, version three, version four, version five, based on the spreadsheet that he collected of all the feature requests that that he had. Mm. And he categorized them based on the number of times that he heard the feature requests. So the ones that he built early in the application lifecycle were the ones that were most critical to the the customers. The third thing he got was he got a um, captive list of beta users. He asked them at the end of the call, when we ship the MVP in 90 days, would you like to be a beta user? So he got 50 of those 400 that agreed to be beta testers. Brilliant. And, the, and the final thing he got out of this, Paul, was he got to, he tested his pricing. So he didn't say, he didn't make any presumptions about how we're gonna, gonna price it or cost no. it. He asked for opinion. He's and, and it's very important how you phrase this question. Oh, I imagine. And, and, and uh, the way he phrased it was, uh, how valuable would this be to your organization? Right? Oh, so, I love it. so you, you use the value instead mm-hmm. of cost and pricing. Mm-hmm. And so he found that, in fact, it would be very valuable to an organization. And then he said, well, what sort of pricing model uh, would you like? And he found that they would like to buy per seat. So, you know, most of them had quite a few people in customer service and uh, everybody wanted to have a login. So, he um, heard that the customers wanted to have a per seat pricing model. And then finally, he asked them, and, and how much do you think it should be per seat? Mm-hmm. He collected that information from all of these calls. Yeah. And at the end, he, he worked out what his pricing should be. So the, these call outs are incredibly valuable and it saves a, a founder an enormous amount of time uh, in terms of testing all of these things. Absolutely. It's just such a, a brilliant case study that, and it's something that people should replicate. And I know a lot of people are really, you know, uh, hesitant to, to make calls and that can be a real trap as well. And it's something that you advocate a lot. And it's so true. It's like, there's nothing really better. I mean, social media is great, but sometimes it's a bit of an excuse not to call because if you actually call and talk to people, it is a different experience and you get different feedback. So that's something I learned from you. Not that I, no, I, I felt like doing sales, I had to be in a certain mood. Otherwise, you know, I felt a bit gloomy or something and then I, I wouldn't come across the way I wanted to. But sometimes it's just like the exercise, you know, just go to the gym and then you'll feel better. Just start doing it. 
I, I think you just have to book it in and make it a routine. But no, that's a, a great study. Um, and, and it's so important, isn't it, getting it right. I mean, like even in our experience, when we, um, you know, instead of doing the MVP, it just became huge because we'd like, oh, we can do this and we can do that. And, you know, without really doing the proper research, we thought, oh, this would be fantastic. And people liked what we did, but it just blew out so much. Um, and if we had done something like that at the beginning, you, or maybe we wouldn't have even started or maybe it would have made all the difference to target exactly. Um, I mean, I've heard even um, Google... Um, when they did their, um, I forget what it's called, like the 3D glass. Um, Oculus. Oculus. Uh, no, no, Google Glass, I think it's called. And I think the first one was partially done with a coat hanger or something. This is Google. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was a great, um, great example. So, uh, Nick, entrepreneurs often face early challenges, and I, I know that from experience. Um, can you share one significant obstacle that you over, overcame in your career and provide insights to new founders how to tackle similar types of hurdles? I think you've got to find a co-founder that uh, mirrors and matches your capabilities extremely well. I'm an ideas guy. I'm a good communicator. I can pitch pretty much any idea that you can come up with but yeah. i'm not i'm not a technologist so um I, you need to have a co-founder who's a tech god to go with the sales god and if you don't have either you're going to be stuck in this world where you've got a piece of technology that's really good but no one's actually selling it mm. that was an example in the co-working space that i'm in now of that and if you've got a sales god without the tech god, you've sold a vision and an idea, but you can't actually deliver on it. So you need both of them. The yeah. chemistry needs to be good. You need to be aligned on the cadence of this. And so often there's a there's a friction between how fast are we running and, and uh, um, how bulletproof is the tech going to be when you ship the minimum viable product and mm. that tension between running hard versus being considered is uh, it's a it's a real tension that i see a lot between uh, early stage founders so nick as a very successful venture capitalist um, what key strategies would you recommend for new founders seeking investment what i look for paul is i look for five things first of all there's got to be a um, great team so we, we talked earlier on the podcast about the tech god and the sales god. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for people, founders who have been in an industry for, in many cases, decades, and they've, they've lived and breathed that industry for a long period of time. And what they've experienced is they've realized what the fundamental problems are from that particular industry mm. from the inside. Mm. They then step out and decide to create a startup that solves that specific problem that they know is endemic within that industry. I really like founders like that. Mm. I also like um, vast micro niches. So, so vast total addressable markets, but I call them micro niches. So a good example would be a company that we backed in my last fund called Liquid Instruments. It was a spin out from the ANU. 
um, the founder, Professor Daniel Shaddock, had uh, been, uh, obviously he was a world-leading academic, but he had also worked for NASA and uh, JPL. And when he came back to his lab, he'd been working with a technology called FPGAs, Field Programmable Gate Arrays, a specific chip that NASA uses a lot that allows the logic in the chip to be reprogrammed. And so they put them in all of their space vehicles because they're up there for a long period of time and they want to be, have an ability to reprogram the, the vehicle to do other things. Right. And so Daniel had come back to the ANU with this idea about an FPGA. He walked into his lab and he saw just rack after rack after rack of single purpose scientific test and measurement uh, devices. And immediately he said, well, why, why are we doing this? Why don't we have an FPGA in the middle of the device? And then we can reprogram it to be an oscilloscope or a spectrum analyzer or a PID controller, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so he came to us with that uh, simple idea and I went, that is a really good idea. And you know what? The scientific test and measurement market is uh, worth billions of dollars, but there's a very small number of players and it hasn't been disrupted for 50 odd years. And so we like that because a technical founder knew the industry inside out, saw what the industry problem was, came up with a novel a uh, unique way of solving it. Mm-hmm. And literally, we, we provided him with some seed funding. He created an MVP in 90 days that worked. Wow. And straight away, we went, that's a great idea. Fast forward to today, Daniel's got a team of about 100 people. He's raised over $50 million. He sells in 35 countries, and uh, it's localized into eight different languages. And, uh, you know, he, he's destined for greatness. So that's a good example of the sort of attributes and characteristics I look for, for from founders. Well, yeah, and, and really great story. Um Okay, I'm just going to go back to the previous question. Uh, I was thinking um, how you were talking about, you know, how founders need to complement each other. So in in the case of um, the, my startup, um, which relates to the question you just answered as well, both of us had, a, had decades within the uh, teaching and learning industry. We're both trainers and, you know, involved in in that industry uh, particularly like the vocational education and we saw that uh it was a huge problem like the completion rate was really really low students were bored this is online learning okay and so when i came across vr i thought wow this is amazing you can actually put people in the space and everything else so we we had that that you talked about but neither of us were um sales or marketing people and neither of us were really technologists. I had an understanding of it, but, um, and, and that was a real issue. I mean, we got involved, we got um, developers on board, you know, that developed it. It took quite a while, but they did a, a reasonable job. But then we put probably too much money into that and not enough into sales and marketing. So in those cases, if, if the founders, are, you know, same, uh, like they're from the industry, they understand it, but they're not, technology or sales and marketing, or only one, would you say, you know, put more of your resources into that? Because looking back, this is why I'm highly qualified to do this podcast, because I made just about every mistake in the book. Um, I've looked back and think, should have developed less and put a lot more. 
uh, into selling the the MVP. Um, you know, I mean, you do teach people how to sell, and it is best if founders sell. But I wasn't successful at for for different reasons, like going back to timing and to technology and all sorts of things. But what would you recommend in the case, like in our case, um, where you know that similar situation? What would you recommend? I think you've got to really test the market, Paul. So you have to do these calls. I, re- I remember actually when we were doing the sales workshop with you, you were actually pretty successful at getting appointments, right? So uh, I think you made uh, 12 to 15 calls and got three or four appointments for the following week. Yeah. That's a pretty good hit rate. So it tells you that you've got product market fit. The The prospect understands that there is a problem that your solution could solve. And you then have an opportunity to go and pitch it to them. So I'm a great believer of pre-selling ideas. So if you can find a business where for various reasons you can pre-sell a concept, so you don't actually build the solution, you sell the concept of the, of the solution. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, you know, you have the opportunity to potentially bring in revenue before you actually build something. Let, let me give you an example. So the latest company that I'm leading is called Campus Plus, and uh, we help universities commercialize their, their research. Yeah. And we do it through a professional development webinar series called PD Plus. Now, this is the period of the year when budgets are up for renewal. So it's the end of financial year for universities. Mm -hmm. Many universities have got unallocated funds. Mm -hmm. So we've been doing a call out over the last few weeks to our subscribers and new universities to seek if they want to utilize any of their unallocated budgets from 2023 to pay for um, the subscription for um, PD Plus in 2024. And surprisingly, we're getting quite a lot of success with that. Mm -hmm. In addition, what we're introducing is we're introducing a new capability which we're launching next year called Platform Plus. And it's where we're able to actually um, have a way of tracking a researcher all the way through their commercialization journey um, through the platform that we're building. We've trademarked a phrase called the Curiosity Index. And uh, I'm sure your your listeners will be interested in, in how we're doing this. So our, our belief is that a university which has thousands of uh, academics and researchers, they can't possibly know what everybody's working on at any one time. And so they need a systematic way of doing talent identification. One trigger of talent identification is when a researcher, an early career researcher, starts to educate themselves on how to commercialize an idea. So it's the very first moment when they say, I'm thinking about commercializing an idea. I'd better go and learn about commercialization. And so they sign up for our webinar series. And it's the very first moment that they've put their hand up and said, I'm thinking about commercializing an idea. Now we capture them, we track them all the way through their their learning journey, and we provide their name back to the university because they're not, in general, more often than not, they're not on their radar. And so what we've done is we've, we've been promoting Platform Plus. We're launching it in March next year. And through these conversations and dialogue, we've been able to hear from our universities what sort of features they'd really like. A good example of a feature request that I heard last week was when when a researcher signs up for um, PD Plus, is there a button where it says 
sign me up for the whole season. So instead of having to sign up for 20 individual webinars, can I click a button and automatically they're signed up for the whole season. Yeah. The, di the diary, you know, the, the calendar invite goes into their calendar. The link for the webinar is there. And so when you have these conversations with your customers, they give you really, really great feedback on things that you go, that's a really good idea. We're going to build that. And so um, getting back to a point that we talked about earlier in the podcast, Paul, this, this engagement with your prospective customers is so important because the dialogue helps you, one, pre-sell the solution. Uh, and by the way, we've already pre-sold Platform Plus to, to several universities here in Australia. And secondly, you get all of this intelligence around what they want to see in that platform. Well, yeah, that's, that's brilliant, uh, Nick. That uh, is going to be something that's really, really helpful for the industry, and for researchers, obviously, um, because I, I guess researchers, just like you know, many startup founders, you know, they don't know that much about commercialization. Like we may not know much about sales, you know. So having that type of thing, that, that'd be great to have that in the startup space as well. Potentially, yeah. We're, yeah. we're really focused on on the you know commercializing research. Yeah. That's really you know my last fund where we we're at ANU ANU Connect Ventures. It was very successful. But what we learned over the decade of running that, and and the reason I started these workshops that you first met me at was because it became clear that the system, the ecosystem, wasn't there to support a founder going on this journey. And, you know, Macquarie University, many universities in Australia now, they have incubators, they have co-working, they have accelerators, they have translational funding, they deliver programs. But 10 years ago, we didn't have any of that. And so what I, what I learned back in 2013 when I first joined ANU Connect Ventures was we needed to build this innovation ecosystem uh, around the community so that a, a, an entrepreneur, a founder, an academic could go on this journey. And so what we've done in Campus Plus is we've encapsulated all of that together and we, we now sell it uh, systematically to higher education institutes uh, across the world. We're operating in three markets now, the UK, Australia and New Zealand. And um, it's the same problem in all markets, right? So yeah. Yeah. governments want to see a bigger return on investment from their fundamental research. Uh, they want to see more commercialization and impact benefits for society. Yeah. Yeah. But there's no one to teach the, the, the practitioners how to do it. So that's... Yeah the gap that we're filling and uh, we appear to be in the right place at the right time we're growing phenomenally fast and I'm actually very optimistic for the decade ahead I think we're going to see a age of innovation and discovery unlike anything that we've seen before we're seeing it in space technology I, I, I don't know whether you saw the you know starship launch at the weekend it got further and higher than uh, the previous version but the inventiveness of humanity at the moment it's it's really quite remarkable and it's a great time to be alive yeah absolutely um we might all be living on mars sooner than we think <laughs> yes but, uh, no, good point. Moon, definitely the moon the moon you know we, we will see the colonization of the moon in the next decade so i'll, wow, that's, I'll, that's I'll, I'll make a prediction to your readers <laughs> okay well i'll interview you again in a decade we'll see <laughs> maybe we can interview from the moon how about that <laughs> deal uh now, now nick um this is a 
probably a bit of a funny question for you because of your involvement in, you know, uh, being a VC and having funds and all of that's really high level stuff. But I have been interviewing some people, for example, uh, Cameron Neal, uh, who does funding for uh, impact startups, um, which I think is a really worthwhile space. And, you know, he was talking a lot about the gap between, you know, the mums and dads and the initial bit of money to start off with. And then if you go after like an angel investor, it could be, you know, a million dollars, but some of them might just need $80,000 for maybe a container coming from Vietnam with fair trading staff or, you know, that gap. And apparently like it's a huge gap and it's a real problem. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that with, with your experience. We're certainly starting to see a very well-established social enterprise sector. Mm -hmm. uh, we're behind the US in terms of the philanthropy. Uh, we're not very philanthropic, to be frank, uh, mm -hmm. Paul, here in Australia. And I reflect that that's largely down to the tax regime. So in North America, they have very favourable tax incentives for individuals and family offices being philanthropic. That really stimulates investment in social and impact uh, ventures. So mm. I think as a country, we could do more to stimulate uh, a tax system that allows uh, our citizens to be more philanthropic. Uh, I do think also that the program layer around social and impact is uh, it's, it's a little bit behind the commercialization ones. The the uh, um, for good, for impact uh, accelerator programs that I interact with, they're still embryonic and uh, they do struggle for funding. Generally, they get their funding from a state or territory uh, funding body. Yeah. And, and then I think the people that it attracts, you know, that, that it, it's, it's goodwill. It's a lot of goodwill and good intentions. But the, the, there's this tension between, okay, how are we going to fund it over the long term? Because if we put money in at the beginning, can we get it to sustainability? So I, I think the big problem is coming up with sustainable ideas that are for impact and social benefit. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and the funders look for that. So I think the challenge is sustainability. I think really that's what it is. Nick, so with your experience in managing the venture capital funds, um, how should new founders approach raising capital for their startups? And just, yeah. just uh, one note on that, uh, a, a mentor and a founder once told me, if you're going to go down the investment path, just give yourself a whole year and do it full time because that's what you'll need. W would you agree with that? Absolutely. It's very time consuming. And uh, this is this is really the tension for a founder. On the one hand, they've got to build product, get customers, get market traction. On the other hand, they've got to raise money. And uh, uh, I see the tension in the founders who come to pitch to, to me. They're, they're working very long hours and getting lots of no's. It's very demoralizing. You have to have a certain... Uh, um, self-resilience to be able to be a successful founder because you get a lot of knockbacks, people who don't believe you, don't believe the idea, don't believe the timing's right, etc. And so I, I think, first of all, you have to have a good idea, okay? So have a good idea that is getting early market traction. If you have a good idea where you can show people you've got product customers' revenue or you've got beta users, that's the first signal that uh, you're on to something.
Yeah. Secondly, you've got to be able to sell it to people very, very quickly. So, you know, you've got to have a clear pitch. What What is the hook that's going to bring somebody in, whether it's a an angel investor or a venture capitalist who goes, that's a really good idea and I can yeah. see this being successful. You have to be credible. So having track record helps, whether it is um, backing startups before as an angel or a venture capitalist because uh, you know investors want to trust you that you know what you're doing and uh, so all of those things really matter when you are raising money whether it's from uh, high net worth individuals angel investors or or from a venture fund the final thing i'll say paul is it's uh, it's a numbers game so if you only have five conversations and get five no's does that mean your idea is unbackable no, it means that you haven't had enough conversations. So, you know, you need to have 100 conversations on your long list and then whittle it down gradually to the five that uh, are interested to talk to you yeah. and then secure two or three that actually go on the journey with you. So typically when I see founders who are trying to raise money, they're just not having enough conversations. I chose not to go down that path because I thought, now we're going to go after customers um, trying to get some sales rather than that. But, you know, in hindsight, <laughs> so many mistakes. This is what this podcast is about. But, you know, it, it may work for some and not for others. But then again, if we did the strategy of, you know, doing the 400 calls and, and getting that right at the beginning, then that would have made a huge difference as well. So, so many lessons to learn. Um, I, I know that if I did start another startup now, which I'm not looking at doing, um, yeah, things would be very different. You'd still make mistakes, but you'd make a lot less. And I've heard that in the US, the VCs there, much more likely to support or fund startup founders that have had failures because of all the lessons they've learned. But failure is like a, you know, a bad, in Australia, it's, it, it's not looked at um, the same as the US. What are your thoughts on that? What are your, your thoughts on, on failures and startup founders failing? And would you fund a, a startup founder that has failed, say, several times before? I would, as long as the new idea made sense and uh, had, had got early market traction. So the, it, the very essence of being a founder is that uh, it's high stakes the risk of failure is very high yeah. and the number of people who go on to have a globally successful company is minuscule. But I believe the uh, nothing ventured, nothing gained. I, th I think it's uh, great that we have a much more entrepreneurial culture uh, as part of our society now. Yeah. And in particular, as I've got older, Paul, I've, uh, I turned 60 this year. I feel as young and entrepreneurial as I did in, in my 20s. I think, you know, we need to be careful to, to not uh, be ageist. I think good ideas come from everywhere. And uh, people who have lived a rich and broad commercial life have got some insights and perspectives and networks that uh, some of our uh, younger entrepreneurs don't have. And so I'm a great believer in uh, uh, looking at uh, anyone who comes through the door. I don't judge them based on how old they are. I judge them on the quality of the idea. Okay. Yeah. Great advice. 
All right, so to finish off, um, Nick, um, if you could leave new founders with one piece of advice or wisdom based on your extensive career, what would that be? It would be self-belief. You have to believe that uh, the idea that you've come up with is world-beating and that it's just a matter of uh, energy, effort, skill, luck, capital that will allow you to go on a very fulfilling journey. And uh, so I believe that we're in for this decade of, uh, of opportunity. And I know that society is now more entrepreneurial than we have ever been before. And so I'm looking forward to seeing the, the next entrepreneur walk through the door with an idea that just blows my socks off. And uh, um, I'm starting to see that every week again. So it's a, it's a great time to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. It is hard work and tiring and stressful, as you well know, Paul. But I believe that the endeavor is, uh, is worthy. So I would encourage all of your listeners to take their idea out of the closet, wherever it is, share it with people, test the concept, mm -hmm. get feedback on it. And if you have validated it enough with enough people saying that's a really good idea, you should do that. I encourage you to get out there and become an entrepreneur. Just to wrap up, Paul, I would just encourage all of your listeners to keep plugging away with their great idea, discovery and invention, test it with as many people as possible. And uh, I'd like to wish them all the success in their endeavor. Thank you so much, Nick, and really appreciate you being on and, and sharing your wisdom on this podcast. And I'm sure it will help uh, many entrepreneurs. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Mm -hmm.